You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And this week, we're talking about social media. I'll be honest, I don't really love most social media platforms. I tend to think that Facebook and Twitter lean into some of my own worst impulses, but there's no way around them. Because if social media didn't dominate the way we interact with the public square by 2019, it certainly did by the middle of 2020. Our social media feeds became our biggest windows into the wider world. On the podcast this week, I'm having a loose, pretty informal conversation with Nathan Lemer. Nathan's a member of the Christian Civics Executive Board, and he's currently vice president at Targeted Victory. Before that, he was a policy advisor to FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. Before that, he was a senior fellow at the R Street Institute, where he worked on government relations and wrote a lot about emerging technology and intellectual property and privacy. And before that, he was a legislative aide on Capitol Hill. He's also one of the most enthusiastically online people I know. He's a thoughtful Christian who actually likes social media. And I really wanted to know what the draw is and how he manages to talk about faith and politics on Twitter without going insane. We're going to jump into my conversation with Nathan right as I asked him what good social media has done in his life. Then after the conversation, we'll come back for a quick closeout. Obviously, we could talk about all the negatives of that, and we will at some point, but you know, there are areas that it's been a force for good. One is connecting with people whom I love and I, I, I don't get to see every day, first and foremost, and being able to have a window um, into their lives, which make it easier to connect whenever they're in town or when I'm back home, or as we say in Philadelphia, home. That's a reference for all of you who, who watch Mayor of Easttown. Uh, but I always started out with that. I mean, being able to stay connected for those who are, who are far away. And then also, it's been a productive opportunity to see people who are really thoughtful, how they have been able to use the platforms to share ideas and mold the way you view the world, whether through blogs or tweeting or substacks, etc. The last part is I've been able to connect with people that I otherwise wouldn't connect with, you know, famous politicians or, or influencers or athletes. And those uh, in, engagements have actually turned into like real life opportunities. Have there been times when you've formed relationships with people that you wouldn't have otherwise, where the thing separating you is not the amount of social capital you have, or is not the level of fame, like yeah. they're a celebrity or not, but instead someone who if you had met them offline, you just would not have wanted to yeah. continue engaging with them. No, that's a great question. I mean, the fame is cool. And being invited to basketball games, sitting with like a former NBA Hall of Famer is awesome. But there are like these kind of subcultures that exist online and social media allows those subcultures to get together. We like to sometimes focus on the on the bad subcultures that connect, but also there's some good ones. Being fans of a team or, or liking a particular musician or whatever. And what's been fun is I've actually connected with a few 
other dads like me who were the same age who actually ended up we both had we, we've had the same faith uh and, and same family experiences and we didn't know each other but we grew up 20 30 minutes away from each other and have actually had a really cool relationship online and in person and uh connecting with people from the opposite political worldview and being able to dig deeper into what makes them tick and just get a whole new perspective for who they are as a person and um, being able to kind of dig deeper into what makes them tick and how you could fit into that that conversation. As someone who is a Christian and a thoughtful and devout and mature Christian, tell me about how you've managed to exist and engage successfully on these platforms that essentially reward unchristian behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, I've fallen short on number of occasions. I'm happy to talk further about that later on. Uh, but let's focus on the good right now. I'm loving it. So the few examples, uh, the examples where it's actually been very successful. I actually say whenever I worked in more kind of overt partisan politics, uh, people knew what I did and, and, and what I was working on. And some of the issues that I worked on, people had very different perspectives on. I would post on, on Facebook or Twitter that we were engaging on this issue or, or item and I get a lot of negative responses. You're the worst. I can't believe you believe that. You know, I thought you were better than this, all that. And then I would always respond like, well, we can take this off. We, let's just take this in the private chat. Let's take this in the private chat. And what happened was through like the Facebook messages or DMs or Twitter, we were actually able to like, get into the, what was at stake and kind of the different points of view. And and I and I try to, when, when I've been successful at this, I've actually been trying to less be about me preaching to you why I'm right or why you're wrong, but more of like explaining how different people may be viewing this issue. So I'll give you a, a good faith argument against what I'm saying. I'll also give you a good faith argument for what people who are on my side would be saying. What's been neat is is in those conversations, a lot of the dialogue turns into really thoughtful engagement and people people really seem to really engage uh, uh, in, in a really gracious way. I think obviously the public stuff can get tricky. I think you're right about that, about how sometimes people are just in bad faith and they want to like get their arguments heard. But then also there have been times when you would take that and just go private or you say like, look, you and I, we're not connecting right in this back and forth. And these replies are just hurting the ratio of our tweet or they're or hurting this Facebook thread. Let's just take this private. Let's just talk this through, let's let's engage one another. I, I found that really uh, uh, has been successful. Uh, there was a situation last year uh, when I posted something, I don't know, it was, it was something relating to, uh, it was a post actually, um, uh, kind of kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek post that a lot of people got what I was saying, and they, they, they it wasn't in bad faith, but they, they got what I was saying, the tongue-in-cheek nature of it. Well, one or two people did not. And they were very angry um, and very, very frustrated at that. How dare you suggest it this way? And I, and I, you know, I did the same thing. I was like, let's, hey, brother, let's just take this off. Let's just go to DM. Let's just, l- let me tell you where I'm kind of coming from and what informed my position and what I'm trying to actually say. And, and things have been, you know, things go more positively than not. And I've been enjoyed, enjoying uh, how other platforms can enable you to go beyond being a keyboard warrior. I've been high on, on this Clubhouse app, which has its own flaws, but one reason I like the concept of audio-based apps as opposed to text-based apps. So Clubhouse is an audio-based app where you and other people can talk in a conversation instead of just typing at each other. And what's been neat is because it's not about giving takes, like as you said, this kind of like short takes to like show that I'm right or you're wrong or try to get people inflamed or trolling people or whatever it is. No, no, you have to like defend what you're saying because people could then call you out and then you have to like kind of go back and forth and like hear what they're saying and stuff. 
and it does for the rooms that I'm a part of and the people I know enable a a really thoughtful dialogue that gets at tricky issues, but also in the same way um, forces people to be more humble and gracious with one another than than you would on on some of the other platforms. You're maybe one of the people I know who's best at taking things offline. Uh, I remember even last year you were posting something online and I chimed in and in my mind I was obviously being hyperbolic. I didn't think there was any way anyone could read this and not laugh at the way I was putting it, but you were rightly horrified. <laughs> I think it was like midnight and I got a phone call from you and you were like, are, are you are you doing okay? I appreciated that a lot. But are there times when you've tried to take things offline and it hasn't gone as well? Mm. Yeah. Um, but I would actually suggest that most of the read times that it hasn't gone well was because maybe I went into it with bad faith. And it would be easier for me to say that, um, yeah, you know, this conversation didn't end well because that person's a jerk. But the reality is I can come off as hot, as you know, and I can come off as overly passionate and I can be stubborn among a whole host of other uh, negative attributes. And um, it is very possible that some of those conversations have been because I was still unwilling to concede my position or I was doing it to, to prove a point or I was harboring some other grudge or issue with this person unrelated to this and here was my opportunity to take it out on them. That I think plays into it too is that like when you go into these conversations with people, when someone chimes in on your on your Facebook feed, which is usually where this happens, or, or on Twitter, like I, I think that's the thing is you want to react to that person because that person is an anathema to you for whatever reason, and you are harboring an issue with them. And the comment itself or the statement isn't what the problem is. The, the problem is that you have this other thing that you're struggling with. And that, I've, I know that has happened to me. And it's something that I've had to wrestle with and I've had to apologize to those individuals, uh, uh, including, including family. That is a hard process to work through and not one that I've ever, I'm, I would ever argue I'm, 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 I'm perfect at, but one that I, I do ask for grace with when it comes to, to, to further engagement. So like, you know, there are times where it's like, ugh, I shouldn't have done that. And the weird thing is my wife always says it. My, my, my dad said it too when I was a little young kid. It's like, I'm the, the fastest to apologize. I'm very quick to mm. apologize. Um, and then I get frustrated that like you didn't accept my, my apology quickly enough. And so I'm like, I'm like moved on. I'm like, I got my, I, I got it forgiven. I, I'm forgiven my own mind. I've said the sorry. I want to move on. But the reality is some people rightfully need to take more time. And so I might be quick to apologize, but unwilling to realize, oh, you know what? Maybe I came, I, maybe I shouldn't have said what I said. I need to, to take a take a step and, and breathe through it and, and let them give them time to, to actually come back to this dialogue. It's easy to realize you broke something and feel bad about breaking it than it is sometimes for the person whose thing it was to repair it. Yeah. You can be sorry, but they're still stuck needing to fix the thing that was broken. Mm -hmm. And that's so hard to get my head around sometimes. Right. Ten years into a relationship with my wife, I still struggle with that idea sometimes. Mm -hmm. I was actually just before we got on this call working on an episode of the podcast about the difference between what we mean when we call someone prophetic and what prophets actually did in the Old Testament. And I spend a good chunk of the episode focusing on the idea that we call people prophetic when they like, when they state hard truths bluntly and clearly, mm -hmm. 
But the prophets in the Old Testament actually put a lot of work into figuring out how to communicate in ways that would actually get people to internalize the idea and promote change in them, even if that meant communicating in ways that weren't blunt or weren't satisfying. How do you navigate, because you know a lot about policy development and specifically tech policy, and you probably know more about it than most of the people that engage on that topic online. How do you handle situations like that prophetically? Do you find it's more effective to just go in and tell people why their understanding of how this policy works is wrong? Or do you have to actually slow yourself down, look for other ways of talking to people to warm them up or open them up more? Yeah, yeah. Um, for, so it's a great question. And I think the first response is you have to have humility. In And I think that the thing that I cannot come across as is someone who thinks that they know everything and you know nothing. And to try to have an understanding of what's the real fears or concerns about why they're raising that. Because sometimes when someone, it's in tech policy, when someone goes after big tech, the fear of big tech or what they're going to do with you, it's not really that. Like it's not the fear of their tweet being shut down or their Facebook post being you know censored, but actually like a real honest fear about like the future of liberalism and the future of the state and the power of people and, and all those other things that connect in their lives and whether they can have their conservative values 10, 15, 20 years from now and, and or, or whatever that might be. I'm just using that as an example. And, and you wrestle with that and you realize that that's actually the core he's getting at. He's actually, this person might be actually questioning about sort of the direction of the country, whether they are right or wrong, they have those fears. And I should wrestle with those fears in the way that I'm engaging with them. And I think that that can be far more helpful. Uh, I, I know I, I'm thinking of a specific conversation with, with someone back in Pennsylvania where, where that was very obviously the case. They had fears about the future of our country that was shaping the way that they engaged. And whether those fears were real or imagined, they were informing the way he was thinking. And if I came across as some DC bigwig who knew all the answers and he and he knew nothing, that's not going to help me out with him. It's going to turn him off from me. I need to find a way to be more empathetic with how I can communicate from there and go forward. With that said, this is harder to do the closer that person is to your life. So if they're if your brother or sister or your uncle or your or or, or, or your father or mom, it's even harder. One of the things Jesus told us to do most often is don't be afraid. But fear makes people click. And fear and anger get eyeballs. If that kind of discourse is baked into the culture or the structure of the social platforms, if incentivizing or prioritizing or privileging content that gets people clicking means privileging content that ends up triggering the amygdala in the end users, and the thing Jesus said most often, if you're going to put it through the lens of neuroscience, is resist your amygdala. Uh, what can we do as Christians to make using social media easier on one another? I think one of the tricks to that is to start out by um, acknowledging that your experience or the anecdote that you see does not prove everything. Um, and that data and analysis and fact and figures are really important. There was this great, hilarious video um, of Ohio, Ohio like Senate committee a couple of days ago where 
they were there was concern about vaccines because somehow the vaccines have met give magnets in your skin and now your skin will become magnetic and look and she, this lady puts a key next to her skin and it it's supposed to hold there but it falls down immediately he says well it's not working right now but the vaccines would allow you to 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 um you know put put metal to to your to your face and, and keep it stuck there and it's like there's no fact behind this at all but this woman and, and the individuals that were with her believed that about about about, about these vaccines vaccines and they were willing to go to a committee hearing and push for legislation against vaccines or whatever it is and and that's a complete lie i mean vaccines are safe and vaccines are saving lives we all know this we, we should all know this but people will take what they want to see and to make it a reality that you know the sweat on the woman's face made her made that key stick at one point but that doesn't mean that bill gates created a vaccine to do all these terrible things to us that's not how it works and i think that that just becomes so much a reality for us someone sees a story about a particular person doing a bad thing and they extrapolate from that to mean all people who are like that do x or y and they essentialize people and that becomes the, the, the dominant way that they engage on social media. And that's just so problematic and it's so against our faith and it's so against reason and so against the way that we're supposed to use our minds as God created them. And I think that that is just so key to the engagement is that first, like you must ex exalt, execute humility in engaging to recognize that I could be wrong on this. And then also on the second side, I mean, not trying to prove a point and going through any means necessary to prove that point, just to be right. There was a, I was in a clubhouse room, clubhouse conversation yesterday. Uh, it, was, it was an awesome conversation. It was a conversation by Hamilton. Um, it was, it actually featured artists and actors who have been in subsequent performances of Hamilton. And in the conversation, they were talking about historical accuracies of Hamilton and inaccuracies of Hamilton. And in there, uh, one of the women mentioned how her favorite song is uh, the, the one about being in the room, how Al Aaron Burr wanted to be in the room where all the sausage was made, but he wasn't allowed to be. And I was going to jump in and say, she's so right. That's my favorite. That's my favorite song, too. I, I've been in those rooms. Low as me is awesome. She said something really fascinating. She said, the problem, what I love about this song is how it reveals how many people who are in politics are so obsessed with being in the room that they'll sacrifice all their integrity to do it. And they'll sacrifice all truth to do it. And the reality is most people in the room are mediocre and anyone could have done that. And I, I like my mouth just stuck and I muted myself and I waited 20 minutes till a couple other people talked. And I said to, to the woman, I said, I just want to come back to something you said about the need for humility with those people who are in the room. And I just want to thank you for that because it's such an important part of this discourse. Many people need to like have that moment where they stop and they realize if I say this, Am I the only one that can say this? Is what I'm saying interesting? And am I saying it just to be right and to pat myself in the back? And I, it's just a reality check that I think we should all be, be doing to ourselves when we, when we go online. All right. That was my conversation with Christian Civics Executive Board Member Nathan Lemer. Near the beginning of the conversation, I mentioned that social media platforms reward or incentivize unchristian behavior. And toward the end, I mentioned fear, anger, and the amygdala. In our classes, we talk a lot more about how the amygdala works, the role it plays in social media algorithms and in political communication, and how our relationship to the amygdala may need to change 
as we grow and mature in our faith. If you're listening to this and you want to get better at letting your faith change the way you interact with people online, you're actually going to get a chance to take one of our classes very soon. So please make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or Pocket Casts or all four. Why not? Subscribe everywhere you can so that you'll be sure not to miss it when we let you know how to sign up for our next class. Now, if you're the kind of person who posts about politics online or reads and reacts to things other people post about politics online, visit our website, christiancivics.org, to check out this episode's action item. It includes some reflection, a prayer prompt, and a challenge for the coming week. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Nathan Lemer for taking the time to have what had to feel like the same conversation with me over and over again. How many times are you going to be able to tell me, don't treat conversations online like performances and talk with people directly and in person wherever you can? Thank you. Lauren Larson was off this week, but she still helped plan the episode. And we'll be back next week with Heather Rice Minus of Prison Fellowship. Until then, thank you for committing to let your faith challenge you to think, speak, and act differently in the public square.